Hello, thanks for joining us for another episode of The Mod Pod. Once again, we have a great lineup of articles for you, handpicked from the JanFeb issue by Mod Co-Chief Medical Editors Leslie O'Dell and Justin Schweitzer, as well as Collaborative Eyes OD Chief Medical Editor Walt Whitley. Hope you like what we have in store for you. First up, Mod's own Leslie O'Dell of the Dry Eye Center of PA at Wheatland Eye Care in Manchester, Pennsylvania, reads the article, Maximized Eye Health Equals Optimal Surgical Outcomes, that she co-wrote with Denise Visco, a surgeon, medical director, and founder at Eyes of York in York, Pennsylvania. Their article explains why it's important to treat dry eye disease before cataract or refractive surgery. Dry eye disease is highly prevalent in the cataract population, and a growing body of research supports a healthy ocular surface as a prerequisite of cataract and refractive surgeries. Trattler found that more than 60% of routine cataract surgical patients had asymptomatic dry eye, and 50% of these patients had central corneal staining. If the ocular surface is not pristine, IOL power calculations, measurement of toric IOL axis magnitude and alignment, topography, and keratometry can contain significant errors. Thus, failure to diagnose and treat ocular surface disease can result in suboptimal surgical outcomes. Because modes of practice vary greatly, from integrated practices to solo practices to group optometric practices to commercial settings, developing a standard of care for the preoperative patient can be a challenge. New guidelines from both the Tear Film and Ocular Surface Society's Dry Eye Workshop Part 2 report and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery provide guidance on the diagnosis and management of ocular surface disease before surgery. Patients may present to an optometrist with visual symptoms and complaints of worsening vision and night glare caused by progressive cataracts, or they may show up for their annual eye exam and express interest in surgical freedom from glasses or contacts. The first step in delivering quality care is performing a comprehensive evaluation that includes the ocular surface. An unhealthy ocular surface can contribute to visual disturbances, affect the accuracy of measurements and any surgical plan, and even sabotage the patient's recovery process. For example, goblet cell density has been shown to decrease after cataract surgery from exposure to both the microscope light and postoperative eye drops. The quality of the tear film would be negatively affected by a decrease in goblet cell density, which could negatively affect the patient's quality of vision and recovery. Patients are best served when the ocular surface is optimized prior to their surgical consultations. Once dry eye is identified, a treatment plan should be implemented before the cataract surgical consultation. Explain to the patient that you are making arrangements for his or her cataract consultation, but that he or she will return to your office before that visit for their preoperative dry eye management. Let the patient know that visits are necessary to optimize his or her eye and tear health to enhance surgical outcomes. When scheduling the patient for this visit, instruct him or her not to use any eye drops for two hours before arriving so that the osmolarity reading is accurate. This visit should include administration of a dry eye questionnaire, OSDI or modified speed, in addition to tear osmolarity and matrix metalloproteinase 9 screening, MMP9. 
The modified speed questionnaire prompts patients to consider subtle causes of ocular surface disease, such as reoccurring styes, a history of blepharitis, allergies, and contact lens intolerance. The ASCRS guidelines recommend that eye care providers look, lift, pull, and push when performing a preoperative dry eye examination. Following these steps will help you to identify an unstable tear film, corneal insults, blepharitis, floppy lids, mild basement membrane dystrophies, conjunctival chalasis, and meibomian gland dysfunction. Once identified, ocular surface disease should be categorized as visually significant or not visually significant. Patients with visually significant disease are required counseling because many surgeons will postpone intervention until the disease has been treated. A multifaceted approach is most effective to stabilize the disease quickly. Patients appreciate and want good care and good refractive outcomes with surgery. The engagement of primary eye care professionals at this stage in the preoperative process helps improve patient understanding and compliance with treatment for the long term. Remember, inflammation is the root cause of dry eye disease, whether it's evaporative or aqueous deficient in nature. The number of available treatments continues to grow. Current treatments include restasis, sequa, zydra, and a various corticosteroids. However, both aqueous and evaporative components should be addressed simultaneously. Treatment of any underlying blepharitis with in-office microexfoliation and identification and treatment of MGD with lipoflow thermal pulsation or other in-office meibomian gland clearing treatments such as tear care or the ILUX MGD treatment system, and the use of at-home cleansers and at-home heat can effectively optimize the ocular surface. If a patient's dry eye is severe enough to require second-line intervention, then an ophthalmic consultation should be considered because the patient's choices for refractive and cataract surgery will be limited even if his or her disease state is controlled. Furthermore, if Salzman's nodules or anterior basement membrane dystrophies have created an irregular ocular surface, these issues should be addressed surgically before the patient undergoes cataract or refractive surgery. Cataract and refractive surgery both disrupt the tear film. The extent of disruption depends upon the procedure or procedures performed. The quality of the pre-surgical tear film patient compliance with prescribed dry eye therapies, and the ocular insult sustained from the use of post-operative eye drops. Consulting and modifying the dry eye regimen to optimize the patient's visual outcome is the critical last phase of the process. Patients presenting for cataract and refractive surgery tend to have a high incidence of undiagnosed dry eye disease. By addressing the dysfunctional tear film preoperatively, you ensure that these patients achieve the best possible outcomes and receive their best possible care. Did you learn something from this article that you plan to use in practice? Let us know. Email us at modernod at bmctoday.com or DM us on Instagram or Twitter. Let's move on to a topic that's not so straightforward, the treatment of keratoconus. Listen as authors Bobby Sines, clinic director at Parkhurst New Vision in San Antonio, Texas, and Brett Mueller, cataract refractive surgeon at Parkhurst New Vision, discuss which should come first, scleral lenses or corneal crosslinking. 
26-year-old man drove more than an hour and a half to our clinic for a LASIK evaluation due to what he described as unacceptable vision with glasses and contact lenses. His entering uncorrected visual acuity was 2060 in the right eye and 2070 in the left eye. He was not wearing glasses or contact lenses, and his auto refraction in the right eye was minus 6, minus 3 at axis 38, and his left eye was minus 1025, minus 9, axis 116. His topography confirmed a diagnosis of keratoconus in each eye. The question was, do we refer this patient to an optometrist for specialty contact lenses, or do we perform corneal crosslinking first? This article discusses the decision-making process involved in determining the answers to those questions. Keratoconus, with a prevalence of about 1 per 2,000 people, causes the central or paracentral cornea to progressively thin and bulge so that the cornea takes on the shape of a cone and induces irregular stigmatism. As the disease progresses, patients can have extreme irregular stigmatism or corneal scarring that can lead to the need for a cornea transplant. However, there's a high likelihood of patients rejecting a cornea graft over time. Thus, our goal in patients with keratoconus is to halt the progression of the disease and avoid a cornea transplant. Approximately one-fifth of patients with keratoconus progress to the point at which a corneal transplant is needed. Because young patients are at greater risk for progression compared to older patients, we must diagnose keratoconus early. The risk of progression is 90% for individuals less than 20 years old, 33% for individuals less than 50 years old, and 18% for individuals over age 50 years. Although the eye becomes naturally cross-linked with age, patients with keratoconus can still progress. Therefore, they must be followed past age 50 to watch for progression. We recommend monitoring patients annually to biannually with best corrective visual acuity, topography, or tomography, and epithelial thickness mapping. In 2016, the FDA approved the Avidro KXL system and the company's Fotrexa riboflavin solutions for the performance of epithelium off crosslinking to treat patients with progressive keratoconus and post-surgical ectasia. This approval changed our treatment strategy as we now have the ability to halt the progression of the disease. Specialty contact lenses are also still an option to address irregular astigmatism and as a last resort, corneal transplantation. The goal of all eye care providers should be to recognize keratoconus as early as possible and to send patients to a center where they can have a one-time treatment of crosslinking to halt the disease progression. These patients still typically need specialty contact lenses to maximize their overall visual potential. But the question remains, which should come first, scleral lenses or crosslinking? The answer is, it depends. First, not all keratoconus patients need scleral lenses. Patients with mild keratoconus can have adequate vision with glasses alone, and our goal should be to keep them that way. Patients who still have best corrected visual acuity better than 2040 with glasses or soft contact lenses or any current pair of specialty contact lenses and who show any signs of progression should have crosslinking in both eyes. Epi-off crosslinking is performed bilaterally within three months between procedures. We then consider sending to one of our referring optometrists to have the patients refit in glasses, soft contact lenses, or specialty contact lenses. The FDA approval covers only epi-off crosslinking, which means it will take some time for the epithelium to heal, and therefore patients' vision will be diminished while the eye is healing. Most patients with keratoconus have busy lives, and separating the procedure by three months allows the first eye to completely heal before proceeding with the second eye. 
However, in more aggressive forms of keratoconus, progression can occur while we wait for that second procedure, so a shorter time interval can be considered. If progression is noted, but the patient has only one eye with best corrected visual acuity better than 2040, crosslinking is performed on the worst eye first. When that eye is healed, we then have one of our referring doctors fit the patient in a specialty contact lens, typically a scleral lens, to see if the visual acuity can be improved. Once the eye has undergone crosslinking, and that eye now has improved vision, crosslinking is then performed in the better seeing eye. And once the second eye is healed, the patient is refit for specialty contact lenses. When the patient presents with both eyes uncorrectable to 2040, we recommend fitting him or her with specialty contact lenses, most often with scleral lenses. Once the patient has been corrected in scleral lenses, we then consider performing cross-linking as soon as possible. It is important for everyone, patients included, to understand that flattening of the cornea is going to happen after cross-linking, and that is likely that the patient will need to be refit for scleral lenses after cross-linking. Some may consider recommending cross-linking first in these patients, but remember that our patient mentioned above was driving with subpar vision. Thus, for the safety of all Texans, correcting his vision was vital. The patient was fit by a referring optometrist um, in a Jupiter 16.0 millimeter scleral lens, and he was now correctable to 2020. The only downside to first fitting patients in specialty contact lenses is that they may forget about cross-linking because they are amazed at their vision with their new lenses. Keep in mind, however, that 10 to 20% of patients with keratoconus who do not undergo cross-linking will progress to needing a cornea transplant. It is important for optometrists to remind patients about the bigger picture and the possible course of the disease. The clinical results of cross-linking overall have been promising. Several well-designed clinical trials have demonstrated significant improvement in best corrective visual acuity, significant decreases in mean uh, keratometry, and stabilization of the cornea after cross-linking. The fact is, until proven otherwise, any patient with keratoconus who is younger than age 40 should have cross-linking to halt the disease progression. After cross-linking, these patients will need specialty contact lenses in order to obtain their best vision. Cross-linking has a global period of zero days, so optometrists may involve themselves in the post-operative period. However, they should be aware of the delayed healing of the epithelium and potential complications including microbial keratitis and stromal haze. Whether cross-linking or scleral lenses come first, there are multiple ways for the modern optometrist to be involved in the treatment and management of patients with keratoconus. These patients require a team approach. By using everyone's strengths, we can deliver a potential cure for this disease, improvement in overall visual acuity, and a means to decrease patients' risk of ever needing a corneal transplant. Ever think about broadening your skill set and expanding your services? One area in which you can do this is in ocular aesthetics. In the final article of this episode, Jessalyn Quint of Smart Eye Care in Maine offers advice on how to offer this particular service to your existing patient base. See what you think about her tips and whether they inspire you to get involved in ocular aesthetics. Interest in ocular aesthetics is on the rise, and it will soon play an important role in both the beauty and healthcare domains. Optometry has a unique opportunity to be a key player in the field of ocular aesthetics. Everyone wants to look his or her best, and the eyes are among the most important aesthetic features of the face. 
Add this to an aging population, and the world of ocular aesthetics offers vast opportunities in today's market. Historically, ocular aesthetic services have primarily been focused on surgery, blepharoplasty, and other eyelid procedures for ptosis, entropion, and ectropion once define the limits of ocular aesthetics. However, recently there's been a shift to a more non-surgical description, one that includes not only the eyes, but also includes the skin and face. Managing ocular surface disease is a critical first step in offering ocular aesthetic services. Thanks to growing research, we know more about dry eye disease than ever before. We know that recommending artificial tears alone is a bandage and does nothing to get rid of the root of the real problem. We know that dry eye is a chronic problem and that it affects patients of all ages, races, and sexes. Treating the ocular surface can improve comfort, restore vision, and enhance the aesthetics of the eyes. Some treatments for dry eye, such as intense pulse light or IPL, have secondary aesthetic perks. IPL not only decreases ocular inflammation, but it also reduces facial skin redness, telangiectasia, hyperpigmentation, fine lines, and wrinkles. Having IPL equipment in your office to treat dry eye disease opens up many aesthetic options down the road. Perhaps you could start a dry eye and aesthetic clinic that brings in other healthcare professionals to put your IPL equipment to use in other modalities. Or perhaps you could create an aesthetic clinic that has a culture of eye-focused health. Your aesthetic clinic could hire appropriate healthcare professionals to perform laser injectable procedures from a perspective that is rooted in the awareness of how each aesthetic enhancement can affect the eyes. Many healthcare providers interested in entering the ocular aesthetics market do not have the eye knowledge or experience that optometrists and ophthalmologists do. Any aesthetic enhancement product or procedure should support healthy eye function, and an eye care professional should be involved in the clinical decision-making process. For example, research shows that a potential complication of botulinum toxin type A injection into the lateral canthus or the crow's feet area involves disruption of the tear film, causing dry eye. If you have a dry eye patient who receives such injections, you should be educating him or her on this risk and working with the patient's Botox provider to develop an aesthetic enhancement treatment plan that is not harmful to the health of the eye. Furthermore, the internet is full of beauty influencers giving their opinions about skincare, beauty, and eye products. Many of these influencers' product recommendations are filled with toxins, allergens, and eye irritants. And their followers tend to take what they say as fact, even when these social media personalities lack knowledge and expertise on how certain ingredients can be detrimental to eye health. Patients care about ocular aesthetics, and they should be getting their information from knowledgeable, reputable sources. Eye care professionals should be talking to their patients about how makeup, skin care, and beauty products affect the health and functionality of the eyes. Optometrists are one of the predominant primary eye care providers in the United States, which means our profession has the opportunity and responsibility to talk about eye health in relation to beauty and skincare products. How can optometrists begin offering ocular aesthetic services in their office? In a nutshell, 
Once you have a solid understanding of everything involved, you can spread that knowledge and commit to aesthetics as a practice focus. Learn about what ingredients are harmful to the eye. Be knowledgeable about common preservatives, resins, additives, surfactants, and fragrances in skincare products, makeup removers, and beauty products. Be prepared to answer questions and give advice on how different ingredients and injectable procedures can affect eye health. Inform your patients that many beauty and skincare products have ingredients that are not always eye-friendly. We're all busy in the exam rooms, so create an education sheet that can be handed out to patients when they leave the office. Include basic facts on how some products can clog the meibomian glands and disrupt the tear film and the consequential effects of that on the health of the eye. Emphasize the importance of removing cosmetics before bed and outline proper techniques for makeup removal. Educate patients on how to be mindful of the ingredient deck in beauty products. Realistically, most patients aren't going to give up their ride-or-die mascara overnight, but plant the seed. Sometimes it takes hearing a suggestion 10 times before it's adopted. People care about their health and their eyes. Information on how products used around their eyes can affect their ocular health should come from knowledgeable sources, such as their primary care optometrist. Don't just advise a patient to use over-the-counter artificial tears. Get to the root of why his or her dry eye is occurring and treat it accordingly. Literature abounds on the various causes of dry eye disease and the available treatments. Get up to speed and enlighten your patients. You can boost your practice and improve your patient's eye health at the same time. Consider selling eye-friendly skincare or beauty products in your office. Not interested? Then find out where your patients can find such products and offer them at your recommendation. The realm of ocular aesthetics is growing, offering ample opportunities for optometrists to incorporate these services into their practice or even carve out a niche in their geographic area. Optometrists who embrace ocular aesthetics elevate the level of patient care and create an avenue for dispensing accurate information to the public. From a practice management standpoint, incorporating ocular aesthetics into your practice could also create a new cash-based revenue system. Thanks for listening. Check back next month for all new content. In the meantime, if there's a specific topic you want us to cover in MOD, we want your feedback. Email your thoughts and ideas to kroman at bmctoday.com.